0: We're here today to discuss a challenge that will define the contours of this century more dramatically than any other,
1: and that's the urgent and growing threat of a changing climate. We're not acting fast enough. This year in Paris has to be
0: the year that the world finally reaches an agreement to protect The one planet that we've got while we still can.
1: Naomi Klein, great to meet you and thanks for sparing the time. Your book, This Changes Everything, has proven hugely popular in tackling the vexed issue of climate change. Unlike a lot of the existing debate on the topic, you're quite explicit that climate change is not so much an environmental issue but one that derives fundamentally from our economic system of neoliberal capitalism. What particular events led you to this realisation?
0: Well, it's it's great to be with you. Um, And I guess the key event for me was Hurricane Katrina 10 years ago. At the time, I was working on my previous book on the shock doctrine, and that book begins and ends with Hurricane Katrina. Tonight, entire towns have been
1: wiped out around Gulfport, Mississippi. A local mayor says this is our
0: tsunami. The challenges that we face on the ground are unprecedented. But there's no doubt in my mind we're going to succeed. The great city of New Orleans will be back on its feet, and America will be a stronger place for it. I reported quite extensively on the storm and its aftermath as an example of what I call disaster capitalism. The disaster in New Orleans was really about a collision between climate change, between heavy weather linked to climate change, and the legacy of neoliberal capitalism and the reality of neoliberal capitalism, as well as American racism. And those three forces intersected in the most uh, toxic way imaginable, both during the storm and in the years since, in the way that storm was was capitalized upon uh, by elites in the United States. And what you saw, or what I saw, you know, in, in New Orleans was just how um, really antithetical a political ideology is that does not believe in the state, how how antithetical that ideology is to what needs to happen in the face of climate change, right? At the time, uh, Paul Krugman called it the can't-do government, and it couldn't do anything in the face of this disaster. Um, You know, so FEMA, the agency that, that should have been, you know, evacuating people and 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 dealing with this disaster. Couldn't find New Orleans for 5 days and Americans were completely shocked across the political spectrum, you know. It was a totally hollowed out state. But but then it was also incapable and this is what's more important, of learning the lessons of the disaster, right? The lesson of that disaster is climate change is real. We need to get off fossil fuels. And we need to invest in the public sphere, both to deal with the impacts of climate change and to stop making it worse. We need to change our energy system. We need to we need to have public transit. We need to change the way we move ourselves around. None of that happened. And in fact, New Orleans has become a laboratory for privatization of various kinds. It's a much more unequal city than it was before the storm. So this is what climate change looks like in hypercapitalism, and it looks like New Orleans, and it's not a pretty sight. Mm-hmm.
1: You you argue that the current climate crisis is a product of what you term bad timing. Could you elaborate on that?
0: Right. So, you know, scientists have understood the connection between greenhouse gases and warming for a long time. But the issue kind of had its tipping point moment in the late 1980s. That was the moment when we all lost all plausible deniability and and 1988 was the year when governments first uh, had a meeting, an intergovernmental meeting, to talk about the need for emission reductions. So that was really the turning point year. It was also the year that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was formed. So I think one, one thing you can only see with hindsight is What an epic case of bad timing it was. I mean, what else was happening in 1988? Well, Canada and the U.S. signed their first free trade deal that became the prototype for NAFTA, and then all these other trade deals that have proliferated around the world. It's the year before the Berlin Wall collapsed. It's right when Francis Fukuyama declared history over, and this single ideological project was was then spread throughout the world, privatization, deregulation, cuts to government spending. Sometimes it's called neoliberalism. Sometimes it's called market fundamentalism. Sometimes it's called the Washington Consensus. The French call it pensée unique. There's no consensus about what to call it, right? But we know what it is because we're all living it. And that is an epic case of bad timing, because at its core, it is a war on the collective. It's a war on the idea of collective action. It's a liberation project for capital. That's what it is. And it's been a very successful one. It's not compatible with a crisis like climate change, because climate change is the essence of a collective crisis that requires that we act together within our countries, between our countries, um, a winner-take-all you know ideology does not compute with a crisis like this that requires that we see how we are interdependent. But there's more to it than that. I mean, we were systematically selling off exactly the parts of our of our economies. That we most needed to control, if we were going to take climate change seriously, our rail systems, uh, you know, our energy grids, our water. Um, this is what neoliberalism did. That makes what we need to do so much harder. And, you know, just because something is publicly controlled doesn't mean that it's good. Doesn't mean that it's environmentally conscious. Uh, but if a public has the ability to you know, have a say over their energy grid. Um, you know, then they can say they want it to change, um, and you know that's what we really haven't been able to do. And 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 um, you know that's why. I don't think it's a coincidence that the countries that have taken some of the boldest moves in the face of the climate crisis are ones that are most socially democratic, right? I mean, it's not a coincidence that the Scandinavian countries have some of the most enlightened climate policies and put a big asterisk next to Norway, you know, or that Germany, which never fully embraced neoliberalism for historical reasons, though they prescribe it with brutality on the rest of Europe, they know at home that it's very dangerous for them to get rid of their safety net. You know Germany, because of that, has been willing to you know, introduce a you know very ambitious feed-in tariff program that has you know transformed their energy grid very, very rapidly. Um, so you know that's that's the conflict.
1: you You make a very strong argument that neoliberal economics is driving humanity's greenhouse gas emissions. Um however, I was also struck by your point that these are modern expressions of an older logic, um particularly the view that nature is something we can quote bend to our will to what extent then is the problem neoliberal capitalism or our reliance on fossil fuels or is it something deeper in the relationship between humanity and the natural world?
0: We've been talking about this collision between neoliberalism and and climate change and it does go deeper than that because now because we've waited so long we need to be cutting our emissions so rapidly that it isn't in any way compatible with a growth based economic system. The Tyndall Center says that wealthy countries like Australia or where I live, Canada, we need to be cutting our emissions by eight to ten percent a year. There isn't an economist in the world that can tell you how you do that within a growth based economic system, and which is why the book is not called Neoliberalism versus the climate. It's called Capitalism versus the climate, because that growth imperative is at the heart of our system. But you know, your question about whether it's even deeper than capitalism, right, you know, and whether it's something about humanity, that's a it's a complicated question. I think it is something deeper than capitalism, and we know that industrial socialist economies have been equally violent towards the planet, whether it's Mao's, uh, you know, war on nature, that's what, the, what it was called mm. proudly, the war against nature. <laughs> How's that first slogan? You know, we know that uh, the only time emissions, there's been a sustained drop, greenhouse gas emissions in two points, one when the Soviet Union collapsed in the, in the 1990s, and one when capitalism collapsed in 2008, they were, they both led to severe drops. So what we know is that the earth you know, responds well to both of these systems (laughs) crashing. Now, we don't want to crash. We want a great transition to another economic system. But the part that I disagree with is the idea that this is about humanity, it's not all of humanity that, that that is responsible for this in fact it's quite a small minority of humanity so i think that really at the core of what we're dealing with is is an idea that took hold in the 1600s in a very specific place uh, it was england and you know spread to uh, other parts of europe and and that was the idea that the earth is a machine that all could be known and you know the key philosophers of this were Francis Bacon, René Descartes who said that you know man was could be the masters and possessors of nature. This is still a minority view if, <laughs> of, if we look at the whole globe. I mean most people on earth actually approach the natural world with reverence, humility, and a healthy dose of fear. So I, I, I really think you have to be careful of throwing words like humanity around. But, uh, but the other thing that's that's complicated about it is that this idea emerged at the same time as industrial capitalism was emerging. So you, you really can't pry it apart from the emergence of capitalism. You know, what came first, right? The fact that the Industrial Revolution was kicking off or that, you know, René Descartes had that idea. Um, what we do know is that it took the commercial steam engine the the marketing of the of the commercial steam engine in the late 1700s to take that idea which was just a theory this idea that we could separate ourselves from nature and dominate it and know it and and and, and no longer be at its mercy and turn that into an apparent reality it took it so it was the combination of of an idea and a technology That allowed us to really convince ourselves, this small subset of humanity, that nature was a thing, that, and that we could, uh, that we could be the boss. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why climate change is so threatening is that it is a rebuke. A fundamental rebuke of that idea, and it is saying to us that we were never the boss. That we that, that this was an illusion. You know, and in the book I quote Robert Mann, who who says this very eloquently. Right, this is a civilizational crisis. This is a narrative crisis because all this time that we were liberating ourselves from nature. Right? Um, because we were able to sail our ships whenever we wanted. We didn't have to wait for winds to, to, to fill the sails. We, could, we were the boss. We could build our factories wherever we wanted. We didn't have to you know, look for rushing water as they did before you know, the, the industrial burning of coal. All that time, we were burning carbon, and it was accumulating in the atmosphere. The response didn't come right away. Right, So we had the illusion of a one-way relationship mm-hmm. but it was a fantasy That and that's the thing about climate change that, that makes it more than just an issue Th- that makes it this narrative crisis this civilizational crisis because now all that carbon that has been accumulating over hundreds of years is creating a response that is making us feel very weak indeed you know we are up against forces that that show us that we were never the bosses that we imagined ourselves to be so I think that it's a crisis of story it's a crisis of of relationship but I would be very careful about about attributing it to humanity because it comes from a place and not all humans believed it and still don't Of course, there are
1: many in business and government who promote a vision of green capitalism, that the answer is to use market forces to price carbon, uh, to drive decarbonisation and decouple growth from its material impacts. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on such arguments? Is green capitalism and green growth a myth?
0: Is it a myth? I mean, I think it's it needs to be pried apart in that... Y- y- there are green pockets within capitalism, and it is possible to you know to have some marginal growth you know while lowering emissions. I think that that's true. I mean, certainly transitioning away from fossil fuels, if you do make the sorts of investments that we're talking about, changing an energy grid, changing changing a transit system, um this is going to create huge numbers of jobs and and there is going to be growth. Uh, the problem is there also has to be contraction at the same time because we need to be lowering our emissions. So people who get carried away with the green growth idea, um they know how to add, but they're not so good at the subtraction part. And I quote Kevin and- Kevin Anderson is, is a you know really important climate scientist and emission reduction specialist at Tyndall the Tyndall Center, he's the deputy director, used to be director. I quote him a lot in the book and he, you know This quote isn't in the book because he said it since the book came out, but he says, you know, we have to make a distinction between going more slowly down the wrong road and getting on the right road. And a lot of this green growth stuff is about going more slowly down the wrong road.
1: Across the world rallies have been held to draw attention to climate change ahead of a UN summit tomorrow in New York. In the latter half of your book, you focus on social movements that are emerging in response to the climate crisis, particularly a phenomenon you term blockadia. For me, this was quite an optimistic message. Who are the natural leaders of climate justice movement and how do we make sure their voices are heard given that many are acting at a very grassroots level?
0: So I mean the people who are leading this movement are 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 the people who are most directly impacted by by extraction and other forms of fossil fuel infrastructure whether it's pipelines crossing their lands coal export terminals impacting their fishing grounds so overwhelmingly it's people who still live off the land which means you know that they're overwhelmingly indigenous people, farmers, fishing people, and and they are, you know, building this movement with incredible speed. And I think what's exciting is that the intersection of this place based movement that is really driven by love of place. You know, one of my favorite quotes in the book is from a woman named Alexis Bonagofsky, who's a goat rancher in Montana. And she says, this is what the coal companies, Will never understand is that our movement isn't driven by hatred of of, of them. It's not driven by hatred of, of of the coal companies. It's it it's driven by love. Love will save this place, you know. And I think that that's just from everything I've seen that is absolutely the driving force. It's love of land. It's love of one's kids and and a duty to protect for future generations, a different relationship to the land that is non-extractive. And, you know, that isn't even about stewardship in the sense of just, you know, taking care of the land so that it takes care of us. It's more about an ethos of caring, caring for the land and caring for, for one another. So in terms of how we hear them more so I mean the exciting part I was just to finish the thought is that intersection between these very local struggles and technologies that allow these different um, f- various front lines of blockadia to learn about one another and to find each other and to feel themselves part of a truly global movement. So there was you know, when 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 there was a huge climate march in New York City last September when when there was a UN climate conference. What was beautiful about that march wasn't just that it was huge, and it was huge, it was the largest climate march in history, 400,000 people. It was that it was this collection of impacted people led by indigenous people at the front, the huge anti-fracking movement that has since succeeded in banning fracking in all of New York State, big contingent from the South Bronx, who had signs about very high asthma levels that their kids were suffering, but also demanding green jobs for their communities and services that would make their lives tangibly better. So, I mean, I think what's significant about this is is that not just that it's a movement that looks like our countries, and our movements should look like our countries, as opposed to a tiny subset of our countries, which is what they too often look like, it's also that I think that this kind of movement, where people have so much on the line for better and worse, it has the potential uh, you know, to bring much-needed jobs and services to really neglected communities, and also better health. And you know, it's re- these are in many cases really life and death struggles. People in a movement like that fight differently. <laughs> they they fight really hard mm-hmm. because they can't afford to lose. And. Um, you know, I think too often the the climate movement has suffered from this kind of thing of like this is this is a movement for people who don't have anything um, better to care about or something like I mean, there's this thing of like it's like a luxury concern for mm-hmm. people who are very privileged, right? And I think what's really changing is the emergence of the climate justice movement taking center stage, um which brings together those daily economic concerns, food justice, jobs, services, um health and the need for climate action. And that kind of movement, I think, has a much better chance of winning against players in the fossil fuel company who are themselves fighting for their lives, right? Um, they are fighting for their lives because if we win, their business model you know, is cooked. I think that that's very exciting. Your question about how do we hear more from them, I mean, I do think that's a very important question for the Green Movement, Mm -hmm. um, which still is scandalously white and middle class. You know, the leadership is too male. You know, in a movement that at the grassroots is overwhelmingly led by women, it's a huge problem. And I think it's a a problem on a lot of different levels, including, you know, this is a movement that is asking governments to change very, very rapidly. And and I think that the onus is really on the, the climate movement, the environmental movement, to model change. You know, if we are going to ask our governments to change so quickly, then I think we also have to look at our own house and say, why have we been having these same discussions for 30 years about why we're too white and too middle class and doing so little about it in terms of sharing resources and sharing the spotlight? Um, you know, if we can't change, then how do we expect to have any credibility asking our governments to change?
1: Coal is good for prosperity. Coal is an essential part of our economic future, here in Australia and right around the world. Politicians here in Australia are fond of pointing out with barely 1% of world emissions, Australia can't really play a leading role in climate action. What do you make of this argument and what do you think Australia's proper role in climate action should be?
0: Look, Australia has the highest per capita emissions anywhere in the world. Australia wants to open the largest coal mine anywhere in the world. Australia has the dirtiest, some of the dirtiest coal-fired power plants anywhere in the world. Australia is not irrelevant. This is just an excuse that we've been hearing for, for too long. And, uh, you know, this is why we have international negotiations, by the way. We have international negotiations because nobody can do this on their own. Uh, We have to come together, and we have to do it in a way, you know, that we all agree to. There is a UN Climate Convention that agrees to the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, which means that the solutions should reflect the fact that Australia had a 200-year head start on burning coal. That means that there's a greater uh, responsibility to lead, and, and that when countries like Australia and Canada and the United States make bold commitments, that makes it harder for countries like China and India to resist. It strengthens the movements in countries. Uh, like China and India that are wanting to leapfrog over fossil fuels, and those movements are increasingly strong. So, yeah, I think that that's a pretty ridiculous argument.
1: Naomi Klein, thank you for your time. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Pleasure.